Philippians chapter 2, and following um, last week's uh, sermon from um, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, we have one of those Pauline so thens. So then, my beloved, even as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is an infallible reminder that God is the Lord of our time. People see the fourth commandment as somewhat controversial um, and uh, don't particularly care for the notion that we must still and are still to observe one day in seven as a day of rest. But they also forget that um, God in the fourth commandment tells us and reminds us that while that is true, that he is also the Lord of all of our time and that we are to labor for six days and then rest on the other. So he's the Lord of all of our activity. He tells us what to do not only on one day of the week, but also on all of the other six days of the week. In no way are we to fritter away our time on things unworthy of God and of ourselves. Clearly, man was created to observe a cycle of work and rest. In fact, you were created to spend most of your time working. And the fact that many of us, if not all of us, well, not all of us, but most of us are retired, we still have things to do, and we still have work to perform. And I believe that one of the most important things that we can teach our children, and for many of us in this room, our grandchildren, is the importance of work and rest. Not play and rest, but rather work and Rest. I didn't grow up in a perfect home. None of us did, I'm sure. Um, but one of the things that my parents did teach me was the importance of work. And before I could actually work and earn any money, I had to work around the house. And then there was the paper out and working for contractors and all of the rest of it uh, and all of the various jobs that I had. And I wouldn't have been able to do that, I'm sure, if I had not been taught how to work. So work occupies the greatest part of our time and much of our energy. Now, when we come to look at our relationship to God, however, and knowing something of the gospel message, we are tempted to conclude that there is no work to be done. Because as we've seen regularly, it has been done for us. And this is the time to 
rest. But that's not entirely true. There's much truth to the statement as it stands. For surely that's what Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, taking the form of a sermon, the Word becoming flesh, being made in human likeness, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then there's something of his exaltation, which is an exaltation that also has to do with us. He was accursed by the Father for us and then was raised and ascended and intercedes for us. And now we have a text that tells us we have to work. But notice right at the outset, the text tells us to work out our salvation, not to work for it. And if we miss that, we'll miss the point of the text. And we'll miss what Paul is trying to say. What Paul is telling us here is that we must work out what exists rather than work to bring it into existence. There's a summary here of practical Christianity. Lloyd-Jones says that. It gives practical expression to what you already possess because of the work of another. Philippians 2 and verses 5 through 11. Spurgeon actually goes so far as to say that here is a text that is not addressed to sinners, meaning the unconverted. It's, It's... not an exhortation to the unconverted. It's addressed to saints, to God's people, to you and to me. Again, one writer has said, the text doesn't tell us to work for something that is as of merit or reward, but to work it out as something already in our possession. Well, there are three things that I want to direct your attention to from these two verses. First of all, from verse 12, notice that there is a work to do because of what God has done for you. The work that we do is rooted in the work that God has done. Paul begins by telling us or by by referring to them as beloved ones or beloved brothers. And the root that is used here, or the root of the, the verb, even as you have always obeyed, beloved brothers or beloved ones, you have always obeyed, and the root of that word is the Greek verb to hear. To hear, and as a result of hearing, you have come to obey. It's a word that's used regularly for 
submission to the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all nations for his name's sake. The obedience of faith. We believe, and that's the evidence of obedience. Or we obey, and that's the evidence of faith. So here is a work of grace, a result of God revealing himself to us in the gospel. The result of God's power, and it's the intended result of preaching, and I have a list here and verses behind each one of those. We hear and we obey, and we do so because it's a work of grace, the result of God's revelation, the result of his power and his energy, and it is the goal of the preaching of the gospel. And it follows again, you see, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 and following. It follows the pattern of Christ flowing from this central motif of this Christian confession or hymn. We sing that that hymn, a debtor to mercy alone, hymn 99 in our hymnal. And hymn number 96, tis not, tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. The point is, we must not think of salvation as a human thing. He loved you in his son, beloved, even as you have always obeyed. They were loved by Paul, to be sure, but Paul loved them because God loved them first and saved them, joining them to Christ and then to one another in the context of the church. There is a work to do because of what God has done for you. He loved you in his son, and he secured your obedience, as we've seen. So there's a work for you to do because of what God has done for you, beginning with his eternal love and his working in you to the obedience of faith. Well, secondly, there's a work to do because of what God expects from you. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here is a work that's rooted in God's love and God's work for us. Here is is a work that is rooted or is, uh, well, rooted in the expectation of God himself 
This is what he expects from you. And notice several things about what God expects from you. First of all, it's personal. It's an imperative. Not only when Paul is present, but when he's also absent. And remember, he was absent. He was in prison. And so he's not there to check on them. He's not there to personally encourage them. But rather, this is a work that has been assigned to them. It's personal Paul speaks of your own salvation. They must work not only when Paul is present to goad and encourage them. Paul's presence was not to be the motivating factor in their Christian experience. They must learn to depend entirely upon God and not partly on Paul for their spiritual prosperity. Christian character and conduct must be developed, or rather must not be developed in an unhealthy dependence on other people. Take responsibility, as we have said from other texts, for your own spiritual upkeep. So obedience must not be motivated by and last only as long as present as Paul is present with them. That isn't the purpose of his ministry. And Paul would say that that they are to that this expectation or these expectations are, are, are not to be found so long as someone is looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing it. And certainly we believe in church discipline, corrective discipline, and there's um, a place for it. But if you're only doing what you're doing because you fear church discipline, then there's, there's something wrong. And while ministers are God's gift to the church, they're not indispensable. Paul is in prison. And they're not indispensable because God himself is present in the power of his enabling grace. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so this, this expectation is personal. It's laid upon each and every believer. This work is to be continual or continued. Work at it, work it out until it is brought to completion. And it's not been brought to completion. Our sanctification hasn't been brought to completion. As one writer has said, work until every trace of spiritual disease is gone. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 3 and 
in, in verse 12 when he says, I think I got the wrong verse here, but anyway. Um, anyway, he speaks of his own uh, pressing, of his own pressing on to completion. So the work is personal, the work is continual, and the work is critical. Remember, you were created for good works, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We need to remember that this is serious, and we must not be flippant about Christian experience. We cannot afford to be careless. Work it out with fear and trembling. There's a a serious side, a very serious side to Christian faith. Remember your weakness. Remember who your God is. And remember that you have needs. The work is personal. It falls upon each and every one of us. The work is continual. never lets up, we never arrive, and the work is critical. So there is a work to do because of what God has already done in the gospel. There is a, a work to do because of what God expects from you. And there's a work to do because of what God is right now doing in you. Again, notice verse 13. For it is God who worketh, present tense, for works in you both to will and to work or to do for his good pleasure. What is is it that God is is doing in you? Well, several things. First of all, God energizes each and every believer. He works energetically and he works effectively. He works in you. You work because he works. If he didn't work, you would not work. But because he works, you in fact do work. God energizes each and every believer. Secondly, God creates a new disposition in you. You are not what you ultimately, eventually will be, but you are also not what you once were. And we call that regeneration, being born again, born from above, born anew. You have a new heart, a new governing disposition. Your your direction 
is altogether different. It's just as you come into the world as a baby, that's, that's the perfect illustration. As life is realized or life begins to be exercised, so it is through regeneration. God energizes. He works, therefore you work. God has created a new disposition. You don't love the same things that you once loved, or if you do, you struggle, whereas before you never struggled and were content with those desires. So he energizes you. He creates a new disposition. Thirdly, God enables you to do what you could not do before. Not only what you did not want to do, but what you through self-righteousness may have tried to do. You decided you were going to be a better person, turn over a new leaf. You know those New Year's resolutions that last just a few hours if they last at all. And so you've tried, but you weren't successful. And so now you love what you didn't love before. You do what you could not do before. And you set your sights on things that were foreign to you not that many days or years ago. Now, there's one thing hidden, and it's not really hidden here, but, it, but I'm not sure that we notice it right on the surface. Again, God energizes, he creates a new disposition. He enables you to do what you could not do. And fourthly, God derives pleasure from this work. for his good pleasure. He does all of this for his good pleasure. Paul in Ephesians chapter one and verse six has spoken of in verse five of our election and predestination, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. This is God's delightful work, if we could put it that way. He takes pleasure in the salvation and sanctification of his people. God delights And we ought to delight in the very thing that gives him pleasure. And so in all of this, God assures us, the text assures us, Paul assures us in these verses of the following things. Every true believer works, not for, but works out what God has done for him. This is the calling of the Christian, the calling 
of the believer. And every true believer does in fact work out his salvation. And so related to that, secondly, there's no place for despair in the Christian life. Wondering if God is really there, if God is really on your side, if God really loves you and really cares for you because of the hard providences that may have come your way. And we'll see more of that from 2 Kings chapter 4. But here's the text that reminds us that he has not left you, he has not abandoned you, and he will not leave you until the work is done. In a sense, the work of Christ is done. In another sense, it's not, of course, because he continues to intercede on our behalf. But he fulfilled his calling in his life and his death for us. But here God tells us that God is still operative, God is still working, God is still alive, and he will not leave you until the work is done. As Lloyd-Jones wrote, the one who is essential to you is with you. Paul says, I'm not with you, but God is with you. And that work continues. And so every true believer works not for, but works out that which already exists. And so secondly, there's no place for despair because God is at work. And if God is at work, then the work will be accomplished. If it's only your work, then that may not be the case. But God works in you and through you. Thirdly, sanctification is not passive but active. There was a, a theory and a view that was very popular in the 19th century and part of the 20th. Let go and let God. Just don't do anything. But that's false. It's not let go and let God, but work because God is working in you. And fourthly, God is not just present, and his work is not present just externally, but he works within you. The text, notice verse 13, God who worketh in you, not merely externally. So may God enable us to be aware of what he's done for us, what he expects from us, and what he is doing in us. And so as we think of these two verses, we must conclude and and conclude in a delightful and wonderful way is that while you must work, you can work, and you will work. Isn't that helpful? You can work. This work of sanctification and developing Christian graces, you you must work, you can work, 
And you will, precisely because Christ already has worked. And his work is perfect. And this is the promise of the passage as we bring those two sections together. Christ, through his active and passive obedience, has brought about our salvation. And as a result of that, we have this new perspective and this new, uh, this new way of looking at life and this new created ability to live out our lives in a godly fashion. Now, I'm not much of an artist. In fact, I'm not an artist, artist at all. But a sculptor looks at a block of stone. And I may look at the block of stone and all I see is a block of stone. I don't see anything, but he can look at it or she can look at it and she sees something or he sees something altogether different. And by removing a little here and a little there and everything, within that block of stone, there's a statue or whatever it is that the sculptor wants to create. And so the believer is like that, is a block of a block of a block of marble, a block of stone. But the creator sees something within that block of stone and sets to work. God looks at the sinner and he sees a saint. And that's exactly the term that Paul uses in verse 1 and the opening of this epistle. So your work and God works. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, and both are necessary. And what Paul reminds his readers here is that there is this sense of personal responsibility. But a sense of personal responsibility with confidence in the power of God. And without that, the Christian is led to despair. And so despair on the one hand not being able to recognize the power of God, and disaster on the other hand, if we fail to take responsibility for our Christian life. As someone has written, a faith which does not express itself in such earnest effort is a dead faith. And so the question is, are you dead or are you alive? In fact, I think that was the title of a tract written by J.C. Ryle um, before the turn into the 20th century, Dead or Alive. So are you dead or are you alive? Passage addresses that. And so to those who might hear me and who are not Christian, these verses are not directed to you except in an ancillary fashion that you begin with verses 5 through 11. 
But these particular words in verses 12 and 13 are directed to those who have closed in with the offers of mercy in Jesus Christ. These two verses have everything to do with every true believer. You must not work, and I would not want to confuse anyone, you must not work for your salvation. It's already been worked out, as it were. But you must work out what you already possess. Not work for it, but work out. You cannot work out something that you do not have. But if you do have it, then according to this text, you will work it out. First of all, turn to Christ. Look to Him. Be saved. And then take seriously these two verses directed to Paul's beloved friends, but also to God's beloved people. My beloved, but God's beloved as well, even as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, with him looking over their shoulder, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Serious business. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that no one within the sound of my voice would confuse justification and sanctification, would confuse the gospel rooted in the work of Jesus Christ, this active and passive obedience, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and absorbing the Father's wrath for us. May we know what it is to begin there, and even as we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, may we delight in and rejoice in and reflect in once again in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then let us as your people, as your dearly beloved people, as your blood-bought people, know what it is to work out what is truly and really ours in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.